It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and the harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. When I went to Covenant College a few years ago, um, well, it's been 40 now, but, but, who's, but who's counting? Uh, took a class on what was called Christ and Culture. And we read a book by Richard Niebuhr that was titled that way. It was called Christ and Culture. And there were five, uh, it's still with me, that's what the impact it made on me. There are five ways that people, or traditionally people have looked at culture, uh, Christians have looked at culture. But the two I think that are the most relevant for us today are the one that's Christ against culture, and the other one is the Christ, the transformer of culture. So Christ against culture is we circle the wagons, we huddle, the world is going bad, the culture is going bad, and we stand up against it. And we do it as a unit. We do it this group. And so the main way you, uh, you battle with the culture is... It's politically, it's standing up against things, it's, it's as a unit saying, making big statements and things like that. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't a time and a place for that, but the traditional reformed view has been Christ is the transformer of culture. And what does it look like to transform a culture? Um, Nobody has ever come to Christ through anger. I don't think anybody has come, well, God uses everything. So that's a bold statement that I can't prove. But how do people come to Christ? It's a slow process usually. It's a process of engaging and not having somebody shoot down everything I say right off the bat. It's someone who will listen, who will listen, who will listen, who will listen and talk, maybe challenge, but within the context of friendship. 
This is the way transformation happens. It's within the context of friendship. It's a one-on-one -on -one thing. We were talking about hospitality in Sunday school this morning. And this is something that I'm gonna challenge you. I challenge the Sunday school class. We're doing our three, two, one, which is be involved in three people's lives or pray for three people daily, that's it. Pray for three people daily, be involved with two of them and have a deeper conversation with one and people that aren't, that aren't Christians, that are not followers of Christ. And, um, and just try to build relationships with them. But we're adding one element to it, which is once a month, practice hospitality, not with just your friends, not just with your circle, but with someone you don't know. Have them in your home, because your home is the place where you expose who you are. It's building friendships. So why do I, why do I tell you all of that? I sent an email out this week, and maybe some of you read it, and I know when we send emails, um, especially like that weekly announcement thing, everybody's like, oh yeah, it's the same stuff. And then people miss a really key thing in there. Sometime I'm gonna just put a message in there and tell you to email me. It's gonna be a nasty message. I'm gonna see how many people actually email me. Now you're gonna be looking at it every week. No, anyway, I sent an email and we feel like as a session, we have a, a new, we, we need a fresh approach to our culture. Helping one another follow Jesus is wonderful, but it sounds a lot like Christ against culture. We're helping one another in our little group and we need to help one another. Believe me, we need that. We're not getting rid of that. We need to be in each other's lives like crazy. But the idea was that we would be reaching out and looking how we can be involved in positive ways in our culture. And so I sent you the vision statement. Do we have that vision statement on the, on the slides? Is it there somewhere? It might be. If not, I'm just gonna read it. Would it be? Maybe? I can't hear anything. No, we don't have a vision statement. Okay, this is what it says. Eastside Presbyterian Church, Church seeks to work for cultural, social, and spiritual renewal in East Greenville and beyond by generously sharing God's grace in Jesus. So there are, there are three and three elements, but they go together, they go together. So when we look for cultural, cultural uh, uh, renewal, we're talking about God's beauty. We're talking about culture and what cult, the beautiful things about culture that we wanna build bridges to it. When we talk about social renewal, we're talking about abundance, our generosity, what we do, working for, uh, against poverty and injustice and these kinds of things. And then of course, spiritual renewal, which is the gospel, it's the gospel of grace. You're gonna be hearing a lot more about this and I'm actually gonna be preaching on on each one of those um, in the next three weeks, starting with today. Um, but I want you to keep in mind, and we're gonna be talking to you about it, and we're gonna be thinking about ways that we can do this, ways that we can build bridges to our culture. Traditionally, what has happened is the Reformed Church, uh, way back in the turn of the century, the 1800s to 1900s, when liberal theology began to take root. What happened with liberal theology? What happened was that people got away from the gospel and they turned more to social programs in 
the world or in the country. And so the gospel went away and that became their gospel. It became the gospel. So what happened with the evangelical church? They started to push away from the social aspect of the gospel and they began to be a Christ against culture kind of a thing. But that's not biblical. The whole aspect of social interaction and being part of the culture and helping to, in positive ways, to change the ills of the world is so biblical. It's everywhere. It's everywhere in the Old Testament. But it goes, it happens because of the gospel. Because of the gospel. All right, that's all I'm going to say about the, the, um, uh, the vision. Except to say what we're looking for is flourishing. It's a biblical concept, and we're going to talk about it today. All right, let me pray for us, and then we'll get into this, uh, this passage. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this psalm. It's, uh, it's blessed my heart this week. Um, and Lord, I pray that you would work in deeper ways in our hearts so that we would see your beauty and your glory And we would see how you've been so abundant with us and how you have shed your grace on us. Thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Would you be with the one who preaches, forgive him his many sins, and we would see Jesus today. Amen. So I'm reversing the order, and I'm going to talk about grace first, because without that, without the gospel, we have nothing. We don't have a vision, Uh, not a a good one. And uh, so we're going to be talking about that one first. Um, So what does the Bible mean? Uh, What does it mean to flourish? I guess, not the Bible. What what comes to your mind when you think about flourishing? Um, So the dictionary says that flourishing means to grow well or to thrive. To grow well or to thrive. Well, who doesn't want that? We all want to thrive. We all want to grow well, but as we face our daily lives, we realize that life is hard and we are perhaps not thriving like we want to. Who doesn't have ways that they would like to thrive better? But there's this deep longing that things would be different. We can feel it deep in our bones. There's this sense that we want to be saved from our present reality. Uh, Charles Taylor in his book, A Secular Age, describes his, this experience as desiring a fullness in our lives that is not there and an aching for something better. He sees this all across society. There's this fullness that people long for. There's an aching for something much, much better. City to City is a worldwide church planning organization, and it describes it this way in the training manual. While most would not call this seeking salvation, virtually all of us acknowledge that the world is not as it ought to be, that human beings are not what they ought to be, and usually that I am not all I ought to be. The present day therapeutic culture of the West may teach that our dissatisfaction with life stems largely from societal problems outside of ourselves rather than our own inner failings. But there remains an undeniable emphasis on the need for liberation. In short, there is nearly universal agreement 
that there's a need for some kind of salvation, but there is no agreement on what has caused that need, what will meet that need, and what hope there is for us to ever actually be saved. Everybody's looking to be saved. Everybody wants to thrive. Well, the Bible actually addresses all of this. It's actually, in my mind, the best answer to that cry of the heart in our society. So the basic assumption of the Bible is that there's something deeply wrong with each one of us. Whereas our society would say, it's not me, it's out there somewhere. I look inside myself to get the answers. It's not really working well. But the Bible says that there's something deeply flawed in each of us. And because everyone is deeply flawed, that is the reason that there are societal injustices and even systemic injustices. And it is the reason that beauty has been marred. So as we look for this theme of spiritual renewal in East Greenville and beyond, we have to address the issue of spiritual renewal in ourselves. We've got to address the issue of spiritual renewal in ourselves. And the Bible's antidote for this is, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we talk about a vision for our church that involves our reaching out into our community with God's beauty, abundance, and grace, the central focal point has to be the gospel. There's no other way to look at that. And this is actually, the Bible says, this is what leads to true flourishing. So um, what I wanna do today is not necessarily look at this verse by verse exegetically, this Psalm, though we will look at most of it, but I wanna point out some of the broad brushstrokes and I think give some of the thematic elements to the Psalm. Uh, and so one of the things that the Psalm sets up is a contrast between two kinds of flourishing, two kinds of flourishing. So I want to actually add a third point to that or a first point to that. And this, so I'm going to, I'm going to talk about these three things, the cause of flourishing, number one, number two, the wrong kind of flourishing and number three, the right kind of flourishing. So the cause of flourishing, the wrong kind of flourishing and the right kind of flourishing. So what is the cause of flourishing? Well, let me just give it to you in a nutshell from this psalm. It's just one thing, very simple. It's the worship of God. It's the worship of God. That is what promotes flourishing. So this was actually one of the psalms that, they, that we know that they sang in the worship services of the temple. And they sang this one on the Sabbath. Uh, this one was assigned to the Sabbath day. So let's just look at it very briefly here. What is it saying? Well, it starts with, it is good. And when you take it with the context of the flourishing later on in the chapter, right, later on in the Psalm, it is good means this is what flourishing is. If you want to be at peace or at rest, if you want to have general well-being, merriment, happiness, kindness, whatever it is. In other words, if you want to flourish, then 
what follows must be done. And what, what follows? Verses one and two, it is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. So three things here, give thanks to the Lord, sing praises to his name, declare his steadfast love and faithfulness. So far, so good, we do this. We're doing well, aren't we? It's working for us. We give prayers of confession and thanksgiving here at our worship service. We sing praises to his name. We declare through our singing and through the preaching that his steadfast love and faithfulness are there. We do all of these things. Okay, then we're doing fine, right? So why do we struggle so much to flourish? Well, because it's so easy to worship externally, to go through the motions. So cultural Christianity is the easiest thing in the world. Say a little prayer, sing a little song, talk about God's love and faithfulness, and then go home and do whatever I want. And it's optional. So there's an interesting poll at the Pew Research Center that talks about church attendance. If, and if you look at evangelicals, I looked at the line with evangelicals, uh, though sometimes I don't feel like I identify, not theologically, but culturally with evangelicals, but that's another whole, that's another whole conversation. But if you look at evangelicals, 58% attended church at least once a week, that's less than two thirds. 30% attend once or twice a month or less, and 12% attend seldom or never. These are, these are people that identify themselves as evangelical Bible-believing Christians. So perhaps church is falling out of fashion because we're losing what it really means to worship. It's not an external thing at all. There's a whole heart aspect here. See, unless our worship comes from a deep place, which actually means that we don't just do it in a corporate worship setting, but we do it all day, every day. All of life is worship. Everything we do is worship. Whether you eat or you drink, do it all to the glory of God. Our daily lives, when we go home, when we eat, when we go to work, when we interact with people, when we do this, it is all worship. And what we do when we come here is a gathering people that have worshiped all week come together to say it in a corporate way, in a much more powerful way than we could say it individually. It's a heart thing. And it says it here. See, what is the attitude? Verse four, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. <laughs> it's joy. Here's the sense of it that when I'm in his presence and when I contemplate who he is, I'm overwhelmed. I relish his love and faithfulness to me. I sing to him because it just flows from my tongue. I declare his steadfast love in the morning and his faithfulness by night. I live in his presence. I relish his presence. I feel loved and cared for and rejoiced over and it makes my heart overflow with gladness. But that's not 
that's not the only thing. Look at verse five. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. It's not just gladness. There's this sense of pushing into him and never reaching the bottom. But with each layer uncovered, there's more joy and there's more gladness. And then you realize that there's so much more to know. But with that little that you have scratched the surface with, you jump in with both feet and you push to know, love, and enjoy him more because it's never, it's always a growing, a growing waterfall of joy. This is the picture of worship in scripture. This is how you flourish. My, my, my. I'm a long way from it. So what's the wrong kind of flourishing? So I said there are two kinds of flourishing, the wrong kind and the right kind. So in the wrong kind of flourishing, it's essentially, just to, to put it in a nutshell, it's an emphasis on the here and now. It's an emphasis on my circumstances. It's an emphasis on what's going on in my life right now. So verses six and seven here admit that those who do not follow God can flourish. That's what it says. Now, it's a different word for flourishing than the other word for flourishing, but they both mean basically the same thing. They're synonyms. It says that those who don't follow God can flourish. Now, now these are some very harsh verses, okay? As with everything, the Bible never sugarcoats anything. And it just says it like it is. So look at verse five to seven. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know. The fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. So people who don't believe in God or ignore him have every possibility of doing well in the world. And many, many do. In fact, many flourish. If you look at Psalm 73, Psalm of Asaph, he says, I just got so discouraged because everybody around me was getting fat and happy. And I didn't know what was going on. And I was tempted to abandon you, God, and walk away and be fat and happy myself. The people flourish all the time. The Bible talks about something called common grace. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, the sun so needed for life is, shines on everybody. The rain so needed for life rains on everybody. Everybody benefits from all the things, the good things that God has done is his common grace. And so people flourish. In other words, your life is what you make of it. If you work hard, you'll get ahead. Humanly speaking, you'll make, you can make money. You can be successful. You can become influential. You can flourish. That's what this verse is telling us. Though God has allowed those who believe in him or do not believe in him to get ahead in this life, but it's not a good kind of flourishing. Well, why? Because it's a temporary flourishing. 
It's a very temporary flourishing. See, essentially, its focus is on circumstances, what's going on around around me, making money, being popular, getting the girlfriend or boyfriend we so desire, moving ahead in life, becoming successful, having a good future, enjoying the next entertainment experience, and so many other things. But here's the problem. Someone that puts their hope and their focus on things around them, the things in this world, on their circumstances, will eventually lose them. 100%. 100%. Everything around you, you will lose. Um, if not through some catastrophe, then through your death. You can't take success with you. You can't take money with you. You can't take anything with you. You only take you with you. I gave this illustration last year sometime, but it's it's worth repeating. About Viktor Frankl, the psychiatrist, Viktor Frankl, who was put in a concentration camp in Germany during World War II. And he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in that book, he identified three groups of people. He was trying to figure out what was it that caused some people, some of the Jews to fall apart or to get cold and bitter or to thrive. There were three groups of people. So the first group was the group that got cold and bitter. Why? Because they collaborated. It was a very small group, but they collaborated with the Nazis. They did whatever the Nazis wanted them to do because they wanted to survive. So they were willing to be involved in the gas chambers and all those things. And they got cold, calculating, and heartless. That's how they developed. The vast majority, the middle group, were people that were devastated. Hollow eyes. Many of them just lay down and died. They didn't know how to deal with it. They were shells of themselves. They didn't cope. Well, they were destroyed. They were destroyed. But then there was this small third group that absolutely thrived. They did very, very well. They sacrificed for others. They were willing to risk for others. They were willing to do anything for others. Why was it? What was it about the third group that made them thrive? Um, Frankel's conclusion was that those who didn't live for anything that the concentration camp could take away from them were the ones that thrived. In other words, the vast majority of them were living for the good life, for family, friends, wealth, comfort, status, pleasure, you name it. But when they were put in the concentration camp, they lost everything and they were devastated because their, their focus was on their lives. But that small contingent did not have their eyes set on those things. They had their eyes set on something beyond and they thrived. They flourished. See, this is what our passage is saying. If you have your hopes and aspirations and love set on what you can get in this life, it is the wrong kind of flourishing and you will surely lose everything. You can accumulate all kinds of wealth and live a wonderful lifestyle, but when you die, it's over. 
And most people live, including us, as if this will last forever. We know in the back of our minds that it won't, but when things change, we're always shocked. When someone dies, we're always shocked. Why are we so shocked? This is the way of life. You lose everything. And so the psalmist has these very harsh words for those who put their hope in this kind of temporary flourishing. It's nonsense. It's, well, he says stupid is the way ESV translate. The word is ba'ar, and it can be translated brutish. It's like an animal that lives by instincts. I'm living by my instincts for all those things around me and I'm just, this is what makes me feel better. And then when I lose it all, I'm devastated. I don't have it anymore. So when our focus is on living a flourishing in the here and now lifestyle, our focus is on ourselves and our comfort and our pleasure. And it just doesn't work. And it brings tremendous insecurity. Tremendous insecurity. Why? Because if you're living for your job or your wealth or your looks or your popularity or any of the things around you, these all are things you can lose in the blink of an eye and you know it. You know deep down you can lose this. In fact, it's one of the issues we all have. We have control issues because we're trying not to lose anything. And it produces fear. So if your hope is set on them and security will reign because nothing stays the, seven, the same. And in verse seven, it says that they are doomed to destruction. Doomed to destruction. It's a, it's a strong word. I fear that many of us, it, it's hard not to be living in the affluent society we live in. It's hard not to be focused on those things. Number three, the right kind of flourishing. So let's just very briefly look at what is true of those who flourish the right way. What is true of them? Let's just work our way through some of these verses. Verse 12, the righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. So the righteous flourish like trees. It evokes images of, of Psalm 1, right? He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. It doesn't matter the weather that's going on because this tree is planted firmly and is drawing nutrients from the ground and water from the streams of water and it is firmly planted. Verse 13, they're planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. This is a soul flourishing, a worship inducing, joyful, glad, shouting, dancing, flourishing because they are planted in the house of the Lord. Doesn't matter what happens here. Doesn't matter what I lose here. Doesn't matter the negative things that might happen to me here because I'm planted in the house of the Lord. Verse 14, they still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. So it lasts forever into old age. They're still bearing fruit. How does this happen? Well, it's people that worship from the heart because they've got their eyes set on something else. So I guess the big question for us is, how do we worship from the heart? How do we worship from the heart? Look at the last verse, verse 15. 
to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. So the only way is that we need salvation. The Bible is offering salvation from all of that mess. This is why we talk about getting saved. Everybody's looking for salvation. We're just saying we believe this is the way. We're looking for salvation. Without a savior, we are doomed to temporary flourishing. Well, everyone looks for a savior, of course, but those who flourish poorly are looking for it in the wrong place. But that's the good news of the Bible. The Lord, the Lord is upright and he is, now this is important, he is my rock. Do we understand that the gospel is full of personal pronouns? And, that, and what we need is a personal conversion, a personal salvation where I declare with my mouth that Jesus is Lord and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Why would I do that? And here's why. He's the righteous one that gave himself for the unrighteous to bring us to God. He was crushed on a cross and he suffered hell so that we would never have to. See, this is the part of the Christian story that people don't like. It creates extremes. For some people, they get angry about the exclusive claims of Christianity that we only believe in one savior. But there's only one who came and gave his life for a people. Others see the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who sacrificed everything for his people. See, this is what the picture that we should be looking at. You can't see this and remain a cultural Christian, an infrequent attender, a I can take it or leave it kind of a Christian. When you see what Jesus has done, you want more. You want to dig deeper. You'll be filled with surprising joy. Your flourishing will have nothing to do with your circumstances. When we, when we talk about spiritual renewal, it has to be a conversation about grace. We, the ones that pursued temporary pleasure, have been pursued by the one who gives us eternal pleasures. We, the ones who are easily satisfied with good circumstances, have been pursued by the one that gave up all of his favorable circumstances in order to sacrifice himself for us. See, if we're going to talk about social and cultural renewal, it is actually impossible unless we understand this grace that has been bestowed on us. So in the email that I sent out this week, I talked about sociologist Rodney Stark and the book that he wrote called The Rise of Christianity is really, a, it's, it's, it's a good read. Now there are sociologists that are trying to refute his work, um, but I don't think so. I think he's, I think he's right on. Uh, mostly secular sociologists that are really trying, that don't like it. And, and Rodney Stark is not a Christian. He wasn't a Christian to my knowledge. He was just trying to write the facts of it. It's a fascinating read, but he talks about the kindness of Christians in the early centuries. 
that they would, they would save abandoned babies on the garbage dump when they weren't wanted. Most, most uh, Romans didn't want girls. They wanted boys, and they would just abandon them on the garbage dump. Um, they would save, they, they, they were not afraid of the plague. They would take care of their neighbors. Many of them got disease from the neighbors and they died, but they stayed. The wealthy people left the city. They abandoned ship. They didn't want to get, take the chance that they could get the plague, but these stayed and they ministered to their neighbors. Why would they do this? because they were positive that this world was temporary and that their lives were expendable because they knew where they were going. And they took this Psalm seriously. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. This is what it means to be a Christian, to build bridges, to a culture that desperately, is desperate actually, is desperately wants some kind of salvation. We have an answer. Tim Keller became very famous for his many books and excellent sermons. Um, he was sought after by presidents. Um, I think after he, read, after he wrote The Reason for God, President uh, George W. Bush, read the book twice and asked him to come to the uh, White House to discuss the book with him. Um, he was in demand, uh, certainly by the Christian leaders the world over. His books were on the New York Times bestseller list. He was incredibly well-known, incredibly popular, huge influence on many people. And then he got pancreatic cancer. And this is what he said right before he died. He said, there is really no downside for me in this. There is no downside for me in this. What did he know? That his future was assured and he had no need to set his sights on anything that this world had to offer him, only Jesus. And he set his sights on Jesus and he died well. See, Jesus is our rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. And that is the gospel. And it changes everything. Let's pray.